Hello and welcome to another episode of the St. George's Rod and Staff, the official podcast of the Church of St. George, the Martin Kales River, alongside the chapelries of St. Mark and St. Mani, because I am Lindsay Shooters, your host on this exploration of faith during a time of crisis. And I'm joined as always by the rector of our parish, my co-host, the venerable Archdeacon Rodney Whiteman. And you've chosen a theme, Does Salvation Matter? But it's also Theological Education Sunday. And it's the second last Sunday of the month of compassion and the 11th Sunday of the Pentecost. But the first reading is Jeremiah. And Jeremiah is an interesting one uh, because first he was like, no, I'm too young. Can't do this thing. Son of a preacher man as well. And then um, Jeremiah chapter one, verses four to ten. It starts like this. The Lord said to me, I chose you before I gave you life. And before you were born, I selected you to be a prophet to the nations. I answered, Sovereign Lord, I don't know how to speak. I am too young. But the Lord said to me, do not say that you are too young, but go to the people I send you to and tell them everything I command you to say. Do not be afraid of them, for I will be with you to protect you. I, the Lord, have spoken. So there God is giving Jeremiah authority to go forth and speak the word. The venerable Archdeacon Rodney Whiteman, you also come with a bit of authority, but who gave you the authority to your mind? Good afternoon, Lindsay, and good afternoon all those who tune in. Appreciate your participation. Um, Lindsay, you always put me on the spot on a personal level, (laughs) don't you? You know, this is one of my, if I were to choose a passage of scripture that deals with vocation Mm. and discernment to vocation, then, uh, and and this is very interesting because just in the week, uh, somebody came to me um, uh, at the communion rail, somebody I've never met before who said to me, "I, I need to speak to you. And when I asked her to meet me after the service, I asked one of the other people to speak to them and to her. She said, no, I need to speak to Reverend Rodney because I have a message for him. And she started off informing me that God had given her a message for me. Okay. I had been quite uh, adamant that if God wants to speak to me about me, then shouldn't God also inform me? (laughs) So I have real problems with people who come and speak to me, and all they do is throw biblical texts around, which I find a bit frivolous if they're choosing to be a prophet. This thing about having a sense of call is not an easy thing. Mm. Uh, In my own journey, being part of the church and being involved in the church from a very young age, my my parents were were exemplary in their uh, participation in the church. And we had family that also were quite, um, you know, my grandparents and so on, uncles and aunties. The church was very central to our lives. And um, the thing about uh, personal commitment, um, you know, became something that I had been introduced to at at age 12, which was about the time I was being confirmed. And, And so both of that gave me an understanding that, you know, somehow having made a prayer of surrender to God for my life at age 12, I seem to be drawn to um, the life of working in the church. I didn't understand what that meant. Mm. Obviously, at age 12, what am I, what am I supposed to, to think and what am I supposed to know? Um, and then um, somebody came when I completed my matric with that, um, you need, I've got a job for you. Now, I, he didn't tell me about this. He just told me. And the job was to work as a parish worker in Mannenberg. The Church um, of the of the Reconciliation uh, with Father Bob Demar, and that's where he asked me a question I was never asked before: Why do you want to be a priest? Mm. I didn't even ask myself that question before. So, does the authenticity therefore come in personal discernment? Does it come in the discernment of people of the community in which I'm part of? Does it come through scripture? Um, Does it come through a a process 
a furthering deepening process of discernment through exploration and experience? Does it come through um, the officials of the church who then discern finally that, you know, we believe that there is a, a vocation to the ordained ministry in you. Now we will be willing to train you and on further discernment then ordain you. So what do I take out of all of this? Starting from a question I didn't even have in my own system. Is it a seed that was planted there? And with what authority was that seed planted that I embraced, that I began to journey anew with that? You know, we have people along our journey that gives us kind of insights that we're not even aware of in ourselves. Mm. You know, nobody along the journey of my life until then ever told me, oh, you cut out to be this and you cut out to be that. Um, and for me then to take that up until Father Bob said to me, why do you want to be a priest? Can I tell you, I still don't know the answer to that question. <laughs> so is, is discernment ongoing? And, and did when I was, as it were, laying on of hands, which was a biblical phenomena, in the modern church that I was part of, through the lecturers that I studied with, through the archdeacons and priests I worked with, that when Bishop laid their hands on me and my fellow clergy at the time, and those that were present at the ordination service, was that all a culmination of the work of the Spirit to authorize me to work in the church as a priest amongst the people of God, amongst the priesthood of, of believers. I think the 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 authority was was collected and I'm humbled by that. Um, it was both the work of God and the work of the people of God. Um, and therefore I have to continuously stand humbled and not in and, and stand in the place of, of responsibility rather than putting myself on a pedestal and says, I am here by author, authorized to do this. Uh, because for me, that's more of an egotistical um, mm. uh, trip than to say, I've been called to exercise this responsibility with, with amongst you and with you to the glory of God, to the furtherment of God's kingdom in the world and um as the body of christ within the body of christ okay um so then through your through your theological uh education um is there an emphasis put on kind of grooming for management as well um because you are now archdeacon I, I don't know how many steps there are between you and the bishop I'm 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 a little bit at a loss there, uh, but with each stage, are you prepared for that role? Is there a a qualification process, um, and then like as you progress, is it just because you like a really popular priest, or is there a clear career path ahead of you? Well, you know, um, as we all human beings, at some point in your life. You're working in a parish, you worked in a second parish as rector, yeah. and you begin to see how bishop calls upon colleagues that are senior to you, colleagues that are on the same in the same year as you, mm. uh, for whatever reason, into a into a, a diocesan role as well, an extra parochial role as well. Um, I mean, I when I became after being a priest. Yeah, you know, I, be, I I was then asked by the bishop if I would join Fellowship of Vocation. Yeah. I don't know what process that took. I don't know who said what in a meeting that the bishop then called me and says, I'd like you to be part of Fellowship of Vocation, which means um, <coughs> the diocesan level of discernment for ordained ministries. Mm -hmm. Now, I was given a file, but never any formal training. 
So basically what I was told, what I was, was challenged to do was to think of where I had come from, what journey I had had. Yeah. And then as Bob DeMar, my theological, part of my theological training under Father Bob DeMar in where I was working as a parish worker was his challenge to me to read and read and read. Mm. And even the public reading of scripture, he would challenge me to read so that, you know, so I was I was schooled uh, in, in that kind of a school. When I told him afterwards how hard he was with me, he said, I'm so sorry, Rodney. I said, no, but it was important <laughs> for me to know that formation is not an easy thing. Yeah. You know, so so I then um, came through through that passage and uh, where I could, I'd speak to others who had done that kind of work before. And then I would uh, from then and then work with colleagues that the bishop had asked to work alongside me. Eventually, the colleagues dropped along off along the way. Reverend Doreen Cornelius was one of the last colleagues I worked with until her retirement. So I did fellowship of vocation work for 16 years in uh, part of the old diocese and in the new diocese mm -hmm. as well. So, and it was it was a challenging thing because you had to discern based on what? Your experience, yeah. on your prayer, on your engagement, uh, in terms of organizing um, monthly meetings, organizing the people, and then giving the bishop an insight as to who must go through selection conference. There was a two-year period, uh, but but still there may be a sense in which you may say, I don't think number A is ready yet. Mm. So on what authority do I do that? You know, because Bishop has appointed me, do I just suddenly do that? So what discernment took place where Bishop then came out, who was the spokesperson, would say, um, I'm inviting you to become a fellowship vocation when I don't know. Mm. The schooling mm. that I went through was basically um, um, exposure to the process of by just being there and then reflecting on my own journey and yes, reading yeah. a lot around that. And of course, I then went in with a motto. Um, I, I said to the um, to to all the people that was that I journeyed with. I said to them, I need this more than you. That is why I'm doing this work mm. because it would encompass both encouraging them to think theo theologically, encouraging them to deepen their spirituality, mm -hmm. encourage them to be formed through um, education and community, um, and then also the tradition of the church, both liturgical, administrative, and historical. Um, these were some of the things that we that we dealt with then. So it was an ongoing journey of discovery for me yeah. as I went to look up programs I could do with them, read books with them, organize them. Um, a lot of the work I did was discerning uh, how, because worship for me is central. Therefore, if worship is central and affects every other part of our lives, then we must take worship very, very seriously. So do they understand the rubrics? Um, in the liturgy, why do we have that there? How do they read publicly? Uh, when they preach, I would I would also sit and we'll do a postmortem on their preaching. Yeah. But I will always start the preaching for the year so that they can do a postmortem on the way I preach, mm -hmm. and so that there is that kind of ex exposure and vulnerability from my side. Mm -hmm. So so yes, that process. And then when um, the next portfolio. Um, Bishop, uh, I was I was asked to put my name forward to become a canon, uh, uh, to be elected by my peers, which subsequently happened. And Bishop said when I was, Bishop told me, Bishop Mervyn told me, I didn't really want you to come on to chapter because of the work you were doing with the Fellowship of Vocation people. So, uh, but then I was elected by my peers and then served. Uh, with Bishop Mervyn in the experience of chapter. Again, they're part of the group, part of how I was discerned by my colleagues. I really don't know. Is it based mm. on experience? Is it based on encounter with me? Did the spirit of the Lord speak to their hearts and minds? Um, is it anywhere near being, um, you know, uh, inverted commas, a good priest? I have no clue about all of that. Yeah. 
then nobody told me except what I had to observe and learn and read about. What does a canon in the diocese really mean? A carrier um, of the law. <laughs> absolutely, a carrier <laughs> of the law. But nobody schooled me in canon law until that point. And then we were able to have a conference around canon law. And so I became, became interested in that. And then, of course, out of that development, then I served um, as one who was elected by my peers. And then Bishop Margaret, when she came aboard, asked mm. me to mm. serve. And so she appointed me to be a canon for the next couple of years, yeah. um, all of which I then began to learn. Now my role was with the other canons. How do we write um, legislation? How do we interpret legislation? And it was a role that I enjoyed working in, but it was a very challenging role because all of these roles call you to a deepening sense of vulnerability, of recognizing we're not ready. Uh, can we ever be ready? Because we're dealing with God's church here. The mystery of God's church is. And therefore, you know, how do we present legislation? How do we present proposals? resolutions and all of those kind of things so but that is, became, the, is the legislation um within the the diocese or is it like external legislation that gets put through two actual legal processes but your legislation in the diocese is called the acts of the diocese okay acts of the diocese must always be based on the constitution and canons of the anglican church of southern africa Okay. It cannot be outside of those boundaries. The acts of the diocese give the diocese, based on what the constitution and canons say, leeway to work out its own way of doing things under the same heading in the context where we are. Mm. So, um, so we have to also have some kind of incl inclination as to what the constitution and canons of the, of the what's name. But at the same time you do this, we must never forget that we, a church in which the grace of Jesus is paramount, mm. a church that has to hold the tensions of law and grace together, which is a tension in Scripture. Yeah. You know, Jesus did say, I come not to, con to, 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 to do away with the law, I've come to fulfill the law. So what does all of that mean as we write legislation for the church? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, things like the pastoral standards was a way in which um, because things that happened amongst the clergy, with certain clergy, that new legislation had to be, or extra uh, legislation had to be brought in so that clergy knows they cannot step out of line. Newer things happened, you know, a simple thing like, should the priest close the door when, when a woman is with him to do pastoral, yeah. what's his name? And all of those things to protect us, the law is both to protect the people and us, so we don't abuse our power. Um, as as well, so we we, we have the, the which should be our attention in law and grace, yes. And then we also have books that give us guidance to understand the canons and the the the, the acts, and that is uh, in our diocesan manual. So you know more practical outputs, like for example, the canons and constitution will give you some the canons and constitutions, and plus the acts will give you some a limited direction as to the law about property mm. but now we have to take that and say okay that's what the canon says that's what the acts acts says now legislate and now, now this is how the practice goes based on that canon mm. and mm. that act so yes legislation always have to be so i mean i was one who had to work on the diocesan manual um which i did and uh, of recent times i was i was partly to um because of my experience through fellowship of vocation uh, with Father John Goliath and other clergy, we uh, brought out a book called The Workbook for Theological Education and Ministerial Formation, which we give to people to think about the whole area of vocation. Mm -hmm. So when the time, when, when, my, when I was now, when the Archdeacon of Blue Downs retired, and Bishop was looking for people to step into the gap, two of us would approach. And again, there was it based on my experience in the church and all of that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. I don't always know how our choices were made, but uh, two of us were asked to consider it and two of us were interviewed by the Bishop. 
and then Bishop had to make a decision based on what the clergy was saying, and hence I'm in this role. Okay, so with the, the canon situation and the acts of, of the church and of, of the diocese, um, it's easy from a like a structural perspective from for like government to look at to audit your procedures um to audit your constitution and then to legislate around that and then incorporate um those things into like the legal structures of the country so then you can become like a marriage officer and 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 and, and. um those things don't kind of exist with a lot of like there's a lot of challenges especially amongst the the, the muslim community um to get those those muslim rights integrated into like the legal system um do you think it's a it's a failing of like they aren't willing to evolve um their canons that is obviously taken from from the quran and is almost unchanged from its original form um is it is, are those difficulties because they they aren't progressing that um, and maybe changing, addressing some more problematic parts parts of of their existing doctrine? I think I would like to start my response by by saying to you, in in many governments in the world, the premise that they would set would be saying that the governments were tied up with um, a religion. Mm. Um, so the uh, church, and I suppose this was where Constantine played a very great role yeah. Yeah. in in orchestrating how. Uh, also, I mean, king kings and rulers before that time always sought to have a man of God um, next to them, so that their authority. He is assimilated with authority that comes from God and not just um, by blood or by war or whatever it is. So, so there's a close association in almost every aspect of life. Religion played a role of of construction, yeah. of, yeah. of 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 putting things together. And I mean, our law is based on. Um, the law that was interpreted from scripture. Um, and, you know, our country comes from a history which had labeled itself Christian. But of course, uh, for us, later on who read scripture, we realized that, you know, you're nowhere near what is Christian and dare to even speak about, about that. So, therefore, it was Christian to the exclusion of the other, which was our conversation last week. Yeah. yeah. Um, the other, whose central purpose did not did not gel with the central purpose of those who were in power. Mm. Um, but the other in in our country was not just a different religious faith, but also a different race and ethnic group, different cultural group. So it went along all of that lines. Now, because we have that historical background. And legislation, in some cases, have been caught up with that. How do you now understand the country to be a, a constitutional state? Mm. And the constitutional state says there is freedom of religion. Now, who determines what religion can be free and what is still bound up in such a way that it can't be free, it can't exercise freedom by law? Yeah. So is the tenets of the Muslim faith, the Hindu faith, the Buddhist faith, and any other faith that exists in our, in our constitutional state, is it therefore judged on what principles so that if it doesn't meet the standard of that principle, it cannot be excluded and recognized by our law? So where is freedom of religion then? Mm. And who determines this? Are there only people there with Christian minds? Are there only people sitting on these legislative bodies? Um, one of the words that struck me when I was looking at the word doctrine, uh, salvation was the word doctrine. Yeah. And how, chill, how, 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 how chillingly important for Christians doctrine is. The doctrine was based on scripture as people understood it in a very dogmatic way. 
Mm. In other words, doctrine is about belief. So if you don't believe this, therefore you are on the other side. Yeah. Now, we don't know who's all sitting in government with whatever ideas. And so have the government been schooled in what does it mean to be a constitutional state when you say uh, freedom, uh, freedom of religion and any other of the freedoms that people can say, so because I'm free to be a Muslim, shouldn't my marriage then be recognized by the state? Because ultimately what they do at the, at, the, at the magistrate's court, if you get married there, or at home affairs, they basically just ask you whether you will take one another, one another to be husband and wife. And when yes. you declare, yes, you will, they give you the certificate. They then pronounce you man and wife. They don't follow what I follow when I do um, the, the, uh, the service, because I'm free to use the service of the Anglican Church. Mm-hmm. Because our definition of marriage is based on, is also in congruence with the um, with that of the state. Marriage by divine institution between one man and one woman. That aspect. Now, when you come to the divine institution, do, do we now declare that, what divine are we talking about here? Yeah. So, um, basically, uh, uh, the legislation of of the, the legal part of marriage is what government can assure you to get yes so we all we do is because you're part of this christian culture this tradition in christianity and you and your priest to marry you does that service which includes the legal side so why if our constitution says we are under constitutional state. Could they not just do their service as per their cultural standards and the legislation be included? Because the legislation is to protect the parties and to protect whatever goes on in there. Should it break up or when death happens, there is protection for the people involved there. So in my view, why can't they be acceptable? Or is it again based on people who have a doctrinal perspective and then mm. argue that the others are not yet ready because they haven't evolved enough to fit in with the current documents? I don't know. But, but if I am true to the witness of Martin Jesus Christ, whom I believe all died, then I'm not there to proselytize. If by my example and witness people seek Jesus, then by all means come to Jesus. But I'm not going to force you. I can only but be a living testimony as far as I'm able to be and as faithful a disciple of Jesus as I can be. Um, but I cannot, I can't force you to believe as I believe. Yeah. Uh, as listeners, you're probably wondering what this has to do with <laughs> the liturgies today. Uh, but I promise you, I'll bring it around now because we have a passage here again from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 8 to 29, 18 to 29. So Hebrews is an interesting um, book in the Bible because not just because the, the author is still hotly kind of debated, uh, but because this is now a letter written to a community of Christians who have now are kind of returning from the diaspora and are now trying to go back to the much like we are now, um, where we've had the lockdowns, we've had the pandemic, and now everyone's just going back to what they know, <laughs> you know, um, outside of, of the, the government regulations and, and all those things. So now it's a community that is trying to intermingle the Christian beliefs with what they know uh, as like being Jewish and like backsliding almost. So within this context, the author takes it upon him or herself to address well-known doctrine and to modernize it a little bit, maybe break down some of the, the assumptions around it. So in this one, um, they're addressing a passage which is Exodus chapter 19, verses 10 to 23. So the Hebrew version goes like this. You have not come as the people of Israel came to what you can feel, 
to Mount Sinai with its blazing fire and the, the darkness and the gloom, the storm, the blast of a trumpet and the sound of a voice. When the people heard the voice, they begged not to hear another word because they could not bear the order which said, if even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling and afraid. Instead, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem with its thousands of angels. You have come to the joyful gathering of God's firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to, to God, who is judge of who is the judge of all people and to the spirits of good people made perfect. So with the Moses thing, um, if you don't know the story, it so the Lord comes to Moses and he's like, go to the people, concentrate them today and tomorrow and have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day, because on that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And then he's like, no one can set foot on the mountain uh, because, you know, <laughs> I'm awesome and I can't be seen, but I'm going to make all this fire and thunder and there's going to be a blast of a of a ram's horn and then you know it's just going to be amazing and everyone kind of and then it happens it actually happens according to the passage and the people obviously want to swarm the mountain but they told not to come so now the author of hebrews of the epistle to the hebrews is like it's not like that anymore because now you have access to like this different type of god so where this is where like christian doctrine falls apart for me is this 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 tension between creating an idea of this all-powerful omnipotent being but also you can't it's shrouded in this mystery and you can't approach the mountain you can't actually go there and find out for yourself but we've now sent these people, we've ordained these priests, we've, I've, I've commissioned these prophets to now speak it to you. But yet you are still, Christians are encouraged to form a personalized relationship with God. How do you, as a working preacher and, and someone who is looked to as, as, as a leader, um, who has kind of sway over over the faithful's lives? How do you knit all those concepts together? How do you present this idea? How do you encourage to form that personal relationship yet still maintain the veil of of mystery? Wow, <laughs> that that's a, a brilliant question. A brilliant challenge to think about. One, you would know if you've listened to previous podcasts that I'd always chosen to understand mystery was all, always part of faith, mm. part of the journey of life, um, because there's a lot of things even in our biological life that are mysteries we cannot uh, understand, even though medical science and other sciences have tried to bring us closer to a not a full understanding, but perhaps a deeper understanding. So yes, mystery does shroud God. However, I go back again, and I've done this before in my response to you, that if, if the story of Genesis is anything to go by, it does show us God always seeking to be in connection, in contact in fellowship, in relationship with God's creation. And I, I you know, particularly with, with Adam, when God asks Adam, where is he? Um, the story tells us God seeks um, fellowship with the, his creation. So, and we also, with mystery, uh, believe and understand that God's presence, we celebrate God's presence in the world, um, which, which, is, which is mystery itself. And the more we celebrate through the readings of scriptures, through the poetry of our hymn writers and chorus writers, through in the interpretations given by sermons, 
to try and understand that, you know, God is the one who draws near to us. God's intention is always to have us close to him and to be in fellowship with him, in community with him. Now, perhaps, perhaps in mystery, God's presence was so awesome in the Old Testament that for ordinary slaves, uh, because they were slaves who understood the dynamics of authority um, and, and the power that was wielded by authority, that if they should do in, if they were the ones as slaves stuck in the mud whilst those in authority were clad in purple and, um, and could not dirty even their fingernails. Um, that's the image of the experience of the slave. Now you go to the mountain. And then you were also in a slave, in a slave context, in a culture where there were, there were many interpretations of God because, look, the Pharaoh was, was understood to be a God or he understood himself to be a God. Yeah. So all yeah. of this influenced our thinking and their thinking at the time. Imagine coming now to hear Moses lead them from that context into a total uncertainty, the mystery of the journey mm. in which the mountain becomes the place where God is met. And of course, that story about Moses and the burning bush happened in such a way that Moses was exposed to what was what was possible in God's revelation of himself to the people. Moses, take your shoes off. You are standing on holy ground. It is important that God revealed that to him because his perception as one trained in fear in, 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 in the Egyptian uh, kind of culture and religion, mm. where there were gods of all signs, the true God's name, you would never know that he needed to learn who the God of heaven was, the God of the people was. I have heard their cry. So now the understanding of the creator God of the Genesis was ultimately the God of liberation. Because Genesis wasn't written first. So it's that encounter with God at Mount Sinai. The God that said they must come worship him there. And they led that the people there. That was a turning point for slaves. Now, what did this God do in terms of again establishing that he's the God of the people, for the people? He goes into covenant with them. He says, I will be your God. You will be my people. But he makes them far more than just these people. Be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. So the intention was to mold and shape them. Talking about theological education, Sunday, there you have the theology of the covenant. What it is, what is it, what's the purpose of the covenant was firstly to be the people of the covenant in order to live the covenant as a witness to the rest of the world. So in other words, the intention of God through covenant was not a nationalized project that would now mold these people into a nation, but that they would be a nation for God serving other nations in the name of God. That's what all the theological, uh, what's name, but it doesn't go smoothly. How do you unslave a slave to think uh, creatively? Uh, but the first aspect of God's reality is God's holiness. And it is only as, as my understanding that when the holy makes himself or herself available, am I able to recognize that I'm called to be part of it, but how do, we, do I become part of that? Um, and of course, it, it, the, the, somehow that part didn't work. So is God therefore consistent that when we read scripture from the Old Testament into the New Testament, we see that ultimately the better solution was Jesus. 
um, because we now have God who embraces, who doesn't just tell us from the top, this is how he wants us to be, but comes to embrace the condition because we couldn't even deal with that in order for us to be understanding that this God is really very much part of who we are in order to make us part of who he is uh, and his community. So did God ever take his hands off people? No. The unfolding of the revelation from Old Testament to New shows that he deeply desires for us to be his people, to be connected to him as he intended from the beginning. Jesus now becomes the ultimate way in, in which God shows this. But that doesn't take away. John's gospel tells us, even though the word became flesh to dwell amongst us, that word is God. The Logos, the word that was with God, the word that was God. God in, in, in embracing our condition in order to, to redeem us. I love the way that it's put by one author, and I may have mentioned this before. Um, the author's words draws me to a, a picture of how they're at the chancel step, where when we come, come, come drawn near to the altar to receive the body and blood of Christ in communion, uh, he, he, he coined this phrase, that's where mystic union becomes a reality. The holy and the sinner are connected, are brought into relationship, are celebrated in a covenant relationship as brought about by the Son of God, even Jesus himself. So mystery, in my view, is therefore part of the journey of, of being drawn into the mystery of who God is in order to discover the mystery of who we are. Mm. Drawn into the mystery of God to discover how we are connected to God and to each other and to all of creation. Because it's from his own mouth that God spoke life into being. And we were always called to be part of God, who is the author of life in all its dynamics. Um, I think I've tried my level best to answer <laughs> such a profound question that was placed on my table today. <laughs> I was just trying to also illustrate like how uh, the I mean I've 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 been a constant critic of of the Paulian epistles. Um and it's just to to illustrate how even things that are considered to be canon to religion must be analyzed. It must be stripped down to what the actual purpose was, because it's it's that it's that it's that sinister intent intent that gets taken for granted. Everything, to my mind, everything in the Bible, in the various and I mean we've we've discussed the existence of the various versions and. Even the Good News Bible in South Africa that was was edited with an intention to keep people, certain groups of people, in a certain place, intellectually. And yeah, I, I, I just want more people to to be aware of these things and to be more guarded with their spirituality, you know? Because like, I, like I've said before, I, I jive with the radicalness of Jesus' philosophy speaking at the time. Because you look at the doctrine to that point, and then Jesus comes in and he's like a student of 
the law. He's a student of the Bible. And here in this Luke gospel, which is Luke chapter 13, verses 10 to 17, now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And just then there appeared a woman with a spirit that had crippled her for 18 years. She was bent over and was quite unable to stand up straight. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said, Woman, you are set free from your ailment. When he laid his hands on her, immediately she stood up straight and began praising God. But the elder of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had cured on the Sabbath, kept saying to the crowd, There are six days on which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be cured, not on the holy Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath you untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it to give it water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years long, be set free of this, from this bondage on the Sabbath day? And like, I, I love this portrayal of just a, a radical freedom fighter, like a, a someone who's in the service of justice and speaking truth to, to that kind of power. And like, I, I always get the questions when people figure out about this podcast or, or my views on, on religion and stuff. And they're like, but your wife is, and like, why are your kids? And it's like, I don't mind them being exposed to this kind of philosophy and to learn these kinds of lessons where it's like, no matter what your laws are, like be a good human first, you know? I think that's what um, I, I discover is the obsession that uh, around scripture, for example, people are mm. so obsessed with scripture and call it the inerrant word of God. I just sent you a link now to a conversation I listened to this morning mm. that I found most helpful um, because this guy who presented turned this pastor's uh, pastor into knots about his argument and mm. um, when he argued that scripture is and this is the other uh, um, is scripture inspired or is it dictated mm. um is god is is it okay for god to have used human beings with their context as they engaged God through prophets and, 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 and through covenant and through Jesus Christ, um, and so wrote the story of their faith, um, which in which Jesus and God was placed centrally. Um, and now out of that, they um, uh, helped to develop um, a belief structure that will help them be contextual and relevant to their context in the same way being witnesses of the God of history um, through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, you in my view, you tie on yourself in knots when you say scripture is the inerrant word of God. Mm. Because now you're saying that if it's inerrant, like my question would be, was it inerrant that the law says um, uh, six days you shall labor and the seventh you shall rest? By reading that, does it, in reading something, are you already interpreting what you think that means? Yeah. <laughs> and therefore, does that mean that's the end of the story? When it gets to a Sabbath day, you rest. Jesus, they hold it. What does this rest incorporate? It incorporates you untying your donkey so that it doesn't go without water. It's inhumane mm. to let your donkey go without water. So why, when this woman comes to seek help by me after struggling for 18 years, should I not help her? Mm. Is that breaking the Sabbath or is assisting people? Does the grace of God not appear on the Sabbath 
Does God's healing power not, is not available on the Sabbath? Uh, when a life is seeking freedom and healing and wholeness, are we then not supposed to be available to them? How do you really interpret? So was this law, according to the leaders of the synagogue or the leader of the synagogue, of such a nature that it was inerrant and therefore what Jesus did was errant to the mm. scriptures. What was Jesus saying? Your reading of it is where the problem lies. Mm. Um, and, and in your reading of it, if you're saying that this is how it must be, as you're reading, you're interpreting what you're reading. Yeah. To yourself and to those who hear you because out of this conversation will come because we need to say so what's the meaning of these words why do we desire meaning why do we, do we desire initial meaning and why do we desire deeper meaning because this is in scripture we are engaging it uh, how did god speak this why did god speak this and what relevance does it hold when a context like this a woman bound by this crippling disease is a daughter of Abraham, a woman, mm. daughter of Abraham. Should she not find freedom on the Sabbath day? Mm. So, yes, I think that's the problem with those of us. And I mean, I, I, I have the Bible points me to the one whom I am to worship, the one whom I'm to follow. So the Bible is important, and the Bible in history and tradition of the church is important. But I'm not going to make a god of the Bible, because mm. that's what I think people are doing when they make it inerrant. It means, in other words, two things for me. When I say it's inerrant, you better listen to what I tell you. So yeah. it's that, yeah. that they, they, in order to help them, with authenticity, they need to use that. My authenticity of scripture lays in the mercy and grace of a living God mm. who can use the stories of the faith communities of the past to inspire me to believe and to discern and discover and to work with God in current day life. The Bible is an important book. It shapes me. It helps me. And all of that, the Bible in history, the Bible in tradition helps me. But if I keep blocking off that it's an errand, what happens is that I can now keep God accountable. Mm. You said this, therefore you better do it because you said this. And people read it as if that words were sent to them immediately. Yeah. Whereas there's a process, yeah. the process of discovery and discernment here. It's God did say this according to how it, the story was told, the canon was formed. But why did he say it? And how are we meant to understand it in our time? Because some of the words there, such as synagogue, may not be related to my context of church. Mm. Uh, other words may not be related. So how are we meant to? I mean, am I going to say right now that the person who comes to see me who's a woman is a daughter of Abram? I don't know whether I can use that language. Or, or, or only Jewish ladies, daughters of Abraham. <laughs> or those who are people of faith. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? Yeah. <laughs> so you can't just use the terminology. Uh, uh, but you see, people who say the word of God is inerrant, in my view, are saying that the scriptures are sukamach and sukhalatstam. Hmm. Whereas for me, the scriptures are living word because it's the living God who uses it to communicate with us, to reveal things to us, to teach us, to shape us, to inform us, to point us to the way. Um, how is it that today Thomas in John 14 said, um, when Jesus said, you know the way. Now, this is a guy that was with Jesus right up at the time that he died. And he says to Jesus, no, I, we don't know the way. So for three years when he was schooling them, they had no clue what he was doing with them. But he still asks, can I, how can I find the way? And then Jesus gives him insight into how that becomes possible. So as Thomas struggled, I think I struggle also. Because I can't now suddenly just 
turn my finger or my pen and put it on the scripture and say, that's what God is saying to me. So, for example, when this woman came to see me the other day and said, God is a message for me, and she threw scripture around, I'm saying to myself, what relevance does using a text just like that yeah. without yeah. recognizing and understanding the context? So I think it becomes a misuse of the scriptures. When we, when we in, in liturgical worship say, hear the word of the Lord, we need to go back to that and say, what did we hear God saying collectively? What is it that God said? And God does not only say something to, to, the, pre, to the preacher. He may use the preacher, but in your ongoing reflection, reading, and conversation, you know, things will emerge there. Deeper meaning will emerge. We can't just take it um, for granted. So, so it, it's, it's harder work when we have to say um, that scripture is inspired than when we say scripture's dictated. Mm. Because you, God calls us into an experience with him through inspiration. Mm. I don't. I think that the the, the the experience of dictatorship is just to say, oh, it's comfortable to live here, and because we all say the Bible is for us, so we are in a safe haven. Inspiration calls us into a life of faith and deepening faith, into a walk with Jesus, mm. um, and into a deeper walk with Him. Thomas says, we don't know the way. How can we know the way? I've been with Jesus three years. I still don't know what it's all about. And then Jesus points him. So, so we are on that same journey. Mm. Um, I think that um, I value scripture far more because I know it's inspired by God and God uses people in this inspiration that he gives us every day. The Bible is inspiring. It's an inspiring message to engage. <laughs> but some people decide to use it as a hammer and then all of the problems in Sadly. the world look like nails. Um, Sadly. Sadly. <laughs> but Sadly. unfortunately, we are we are nuanced. We are we are different people. We are we have different backgrounds, we have different well, we, we have a, a set of common motivations like life, um, freedom, love, community, um, uh, hunger <laughs> it's also one of our, our motivations uh, and once those are all covered then it comes down to like the cultures that we build up through the environments that we are placed in um, and how we respond to that and the solutions that we create and then you get the people who are like no but it must be this way because I need laws in my life that I can cling to so that I can feel important because I know them very well as I, the world doesn't work that way. But this has been another fantastic conversation. Sorry about the bit of a meander um, to the listeners uh, at, at the beginning, but but I'm sure it, it all makes sense now. It's like Theological Sunday is a, an important kind of theme for me because I, I get asked, I've, I've been asked at least three times <laughs> um, since doing this podcast, like, if you say you don't have the faith, then what faith are you exploring? And it's like my faith in humanity. My faith has always been in humanity. I've always put that up front. And through these conversations, you start to explore the different humanitarian angles, the human angles within the doctrine. And it's easy to, to cling to the doctrine and forget the humans. And yeah, that's 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 what I'm here for, trying to to balance out that that sort. And as always, um, all the choice passages, readings are in the podcast description, along with the colic and then relevant links. I think I will put that link to that video um, that you have sent me, Father, in the podcast description as well, so that people can have access to that. And that's my story for this week. Thank you very much for listening, Father. Over to you. Any closing remarks? Certainly. So I will close with this, um, that I certainly believe scripture points out to us what our hearts truly desire. And that is the need for saving grace, salvation. 
and who the one is that helps us to find that. Because humanity seeks salvation out of various things. Salvation means something for our survival. And so I think scripture helps us find, find um, the essence of that salvation in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and I would like to just end off with, with that, if I may, tying it up with the theme I chose for this <laughs> But I appreciate that. Thank you very much. I appreciate you. I appreciate you for listening as well. Chat to you next week.